Maybe you're here because you've run out of something to binge watch on Netflix. Maybe you're here because you're trying to make sense of things. Whatever the reason, many have found themselves looking for answers to big questions. This is a space for honest, non-judgmental chat about some of life's real issues. And while we don't have all the answers, we are happy to ask the question, what's God got to do with it? Hi, I'm Alex. And I'm Mark. We are totally out of our debt and honestly winging it a little. But you'll be relieved to know that we're drafting an experts each episode to help us out. We were delighted to have Andy Bannister from Solace CPC, the Centre for Public Christianity, based down in Dundee, and he came to speak to us on the topic of how do we have good conversations? How do we disagree well? How do we have arguments without falling out? And how do we uh, talk about truth without being arrogant? Huge topic, I'm sure you'll agree, and I'm sorry that I wasn't actually able to be there, but I leave you in the capable hands of Alex, who, who did an excellent job of talking through this topic with Andy recently. Well, thank you so much for giving us your time, Andy, and your um, and your wisdom on this matter. I mean, disagreeing with each other is um, a very big theme right now, especially with COVID and um, politics and religion. There's so many ways that we can we can disagree with each other. So many different formats. Um, but let's just start. Could you just tell us a bit about yourself? Yeah, so my name is um, Andy Bannister, and despite the um, London accent, I live in uh, Dundee uh, in Scotland. We've been here for about three, three and a half years. Um, before that, we were in Canada, uh, in Toronto for six years, and then before that in London. And um, I head up an organization called SOLAS, and we're a Christian organization that really focuses on two things. Uh, the first thing is we love to take the message of Jesus out of the four walls of the church and go where people are. So we go into pubs and restaurants and curry houses and coffee shops and put on events that engage people's honest questions about Jesus and the Christian faith and try and show how there are good answers. And then we also try and help uh, teach and train Christians to be able to talk about Jesus to their friends, their colleagues, their neighbours in a way that engages them. Because what we find is that I think there's a huge interest uh, and the message of Jesus. Uh, lots of people have big questions, and uh, and sometimes people who are not followers of Jesus and Christians sort of end up talking past each other. So we try and sit in the middle and get those conversations uh, going uh, whenever we can. So you've obviously encountered a lot of people who have very different opinions to yours. Um, what conditions have you found to make the most productive arguments? I think one of the first things... Um, you know, Alex, I think there's two temptations in our society. Um, one of the big ones is to paper over the differences, to pretend they don't exist. And so to give you an example, my, you know, my academic background is in uh, studying Islam. Uh, my PhD is in the Quran. I've spent hundreds, thousands of hours talking to Muslims um, about my faith and their faith. And I figured out early on, if we just pretended we believed the same things, that's not an honest conversation because you're sort of ignoring big elephants in the room. You're papering over differences. Um, and I think also in society, it can be very tempting to pretend, you know, we all think the same and we don't. And so I think, you know, the first principle is to recognize that people have different opinions and uh, to give people a space to express those. And, you know, if you have friends who think differently to you to say, hey, tell me what you think. I really want to know. And in return, I'd love you to, to perhaps hear what I think. So the first thing is be honest about the differences. Um, I think the second thing is then not to weaponize those differences. You know, we live in a culture where, you know, sometimes people can be very quick to take a difference of opinion. And because we disagree with it, rather than sort of press into, well, that's interesting. Why do you think that? We reach straight for, 
you know, insults and weapons. Social media is very good at this. Mm-hmm. And I think if we could step back from there, and uh, I think sometimes that comes out of pride and it comes out of fear. And, uh, and one of the things I think, of, I think the Christian faith can be helpful here is that as, you know, when you realize that, you know, your identity when you become a follower of Jesus is not in having the right opinions, your identity is in Jesus, then I don't need to be as, you know, vociferous in defending my opinions because my identity is not located in them. Um, I think sometimes we live in an age where, you know, our opinions sort of define us and then we feel we have to go full blown assault on people who think differently. So recognize there are differences and then try not to weaponize those differences. Be generous to others. Yeah, absolutely. It's almost like we're at the point where um, it's almost tribal. It's almost an, an us and them camp. Like, And you you find more companionship with people that share the same beliefs as you, whereas in actual fact, hmm. um it doesn't need to be like that. It doesn't need to be that you love the people who think most like yourself. Hmm. I completely agree. And actually on the tribal piece, you know, there's, there's a piece of research done uh, a few years ago around the time of the last American presidential election, actually by a big American university, which looked at the behavior of uh, the tribes of, uh, you know, Democrats and Republicans online and noticed that both groups behave the same way that uh, on things like Facebook and Instagram, social media, people only quoted their own side. Mm-hmm. Um, they were always negative about the other side. And in other words, you've got echo chambers developing. And now that was American politics. It's very easy as, you know, Brits to be superior and go, well, that wouldn't happen here. Really? Really? <laughs> Brexit, I think, proved that or or Scottish independence or take any contentious issue and the tribes emerge. And I think technology has made it worse because we could very easily retreat into those tribes. So one way to, I guess, to push back against that is to ask yourself, uh, you know, as a listener to this, the question, how often do I read deliberately seek out voices from outside of my tribe? I, I try to you know, regularly make sure, like, for example, the news that I'm consuming journalism that I disagree with, um, because while I may get very frustrated, it at least keeps me sharp and, and hopefully means I'm not just listening to those who are just affirming everything I think. Is it better than to just not discuss our disagreements? If we know that there's a potential for things to escalate, for um, relationships to kind of blow up based on something that you're majorly disagreeing on that's a really interesting question and and clearly there are times where maybe it's it's wise to be aware of when wading into an issue might not be a good idea particularly there are contexts too you know we're recording this during lockdown because of coronavirus and you know maybe having a a spirited political discussion with a family member who you've got a difficult relationship anyway with over zoom might not be the way to do it (laughs) Um, but at the same time one of the things I'm increasingly convinced of Alex is that a sign of a genuine friendship is that you can talk about the things that you disagree with. If you're you have if you're friends with somebody, if you have someone in your family, and there are there are whole no go areas, you know, parts of the map that are marked, you know, here be dragons, um, and you can't venture there. There's a problem. Um, you know, my wife and I have been married for you know twenty odd years now, twenty two years this year, and uh, you know we've got we have a, a a wonderful marriage, but we also have things that we disagree about. But actually, I think part of the secret to our building a strong marriage has been, okay, when we find things we disagree about, we're perhaps wise in how we handle them, but we press into them rather than run away from them. And maybe in our relationships, generally, it's worth thinking about that. One way to take a lead on that is to do that with humility. Um, and if you have someone who disagrees with you profoundly, rather than see that as an opportunity to prove them wrong, why not say to your friend or your family member, look, I realize that you think very differently to me on this subject, but I've never fully understood why. 
why don't you just tell me what you believe? And I promise I won't interrupt and be honest in that. Be faithful in that. Don't take an opportunity to score points. Take an opportunity to learn and to understand. Um, because I think one of the things I deeply appreciate about the about the Christian faith and about Jesus is, you know, Jesus was the was the great leveler. He he approached people as they as they were. He didn't let sort of people build up these sorts of profiles, you know, religious or otherwise, that they hid behind. But also, I think the other thing that Jesus uh, teaches me is that the radical message of the heart of the Christian faith is that all of us are separated from God because of the rebellion and mess and nonsense in our, in our lives, and all of us need. Jesus's work of forgiveness uh, to bring us back into relationship with God. Well, you know what? That's deeply humbling because mm. it means I don't have the right to look at somebody else and go, well, if only they were as nice a human being as I am, because the message of the gospel is very humbling. It's actually all of us are mess up, messed up and broken, but all of us are tremendously loved by Jesus um, because he, he was willing to pay his life for me and for you. And with that in the back of our minds, that's a great way to then approach others who we might profoundly disagree with, but that means I have no excuse to, you know, treat them as second class citizens because they don't share my enlightened opinions. Yeah. I did. Yeah. I realize I did quote marks, sort of fingers there because we're on zoom, but the uh, podcast listeners won't get the full effect. You have to imagine that. <laughs> there leaves a lot less room for um, arrogance in that way. I think that's probably another thing that um, kind of adds to the explosion that happens in disagreement is that um by stating you have an opinion, by stating that it's quite strong an opinion, it, it's almost like you're you're storming in with quite a lot of arrogance and the fact that you think you're right. Um, so how do you show love um, when we're hurt by what someone has said in a disagreement or, or when someone's opinion actually directly impacts our life? Yeah, I mean, there you get into a very interesting question right because you say show you love is a question um the related question to that of course is forgiveness you know how do we find the power to to forgive uh you know i remember being told when i was growing up as a, as a kid you know the old line sticks and stones will break my bones but names will never hurt me well that's not actually true words can words can do a lot of damage but one of the big questions i think we have as human beings is how we find the power to forgive uh because the reality of life is that we're, we're going to hurt others and others are going to hurt us and again, I think one of the one of the great resources I've t- I found in my relationship with Christ and following Christ uh, over the last kind of twenty years or so has been there are tremendous resources there for for forgiveness. Um, firstly, because I think there's the, the when you come to realise how much you've been forgiven, and at the heart of the Christian faith is this radical understanding that we've been forgiven tremendous amounts by by God, and that was very costly forgiveness. Forgiveness is always costly, and it costs God a lot to forgive you or I. It's easier to forgive others when you yourself have been forgiven if you think you're perfect and you don't need any work done then it's very easy to to say well i'm not going to forgive that person but if you realize you've been forgiven it's easier to forgive others um secondly the bible is also kind of very clear that one of the things we can do you know if someone's really wounded us and perhaps it's not even possible to put that relationship right perhaps they, they don't want anything to do with us uh even perhaps they've they've died and, and, and are no longer with us and we can't deal with what happened five years ago um, the Bible is also very clear because God is a God of justice and a God of judgment and a God who will see that all wrongs are righted. It also means when somebody wrongs you badly and you can't see any way to put that right, you can let that go and leave that to God. You could st- you could still be angry, you could still be upset, but you haven't got to take onto your own shoulders the uh, the task of dealing with it. You can, in one sense, leave it to the to the judge of the universe. And many people who've written 
uh, and reflected very uh, profoundly on, on on forgiveness, particularly people who've lived through tremendous things like you know war zones and uh, ethnic cleansing and you know tremendous uh, examples of, of wrongdoing uh, and injustices. You know, many people who've written out of those contexts have said that that ability to leave it in God's hands rather than feel that you have to take vengeance is the first step on the path to forgiveness. It's not the last step. Forgiveness is not easy, but it's a first step. So then how do you express an opinion, if at all, um, when the consequences of what we say directly impact someone else's life? So there's a lot of things that um, we don't really have the time nor the space to kind of go into each of them right now, but um, there's a lot of things that we say that, actually directly impact the way other people live who hold none of our opinions Hmm. so do we express those opinions and if so how um yeah i think there's a couple of things again i want to say here i think i think we again we live in an age where people i think are increasingly discouraged not to express any opinion that, that, that doesn't conform to the to the standard kind of narrative i think you know christians have found this in in many contexts and and others actually if you don't subscribe to whatever the particular you know opinion of the age is it can be quite difficult and so i would not want to be saying to people listening to this well you must never express opinions i think there can be there'll be times it can be helpful to it'd be times you know that actually a dissenting opinion is important because actually it's when you have those dissenting opinions that we perhaps get stronger you know, if you're in a, a team at work working on a project and everyone's thinking one thing, but you're the one voice thinking, I'm not convinced by this, actually not speaking up, maybe actually you do damage by not speaking up and saying, hang on, we may miss something here. But more generally in life, uh, Alex, I think sometimes it could be we live in an age that so encourages us to just leap out with our opinion. I mean, social media is based around the idea that everyone wants to hear your opinion. Uh, you know, tweet it, Facebook it, Instagram it. Uh, and I think very quickly we can we can express our opinions, perhaps sometimes where we don't need to. I think a great adage to kind of live by is to ask yourself the question before you express an opinion to in your head, just go through this little checklist. You can say, you know, is it wise? Is it true? Is it helpful? Um, can be sometimes uh, good ones. I find that on social media because I'm very I love sort of posting things when I see things. And sometimes I've started arguments without meaning to. And now before I click that post button, I would sometimes try and go through that checklist and it's interesting checklist because you know what you're saying may well very well be true you may have absolute truth but posting it at that moment into that conversation may actually just cause damage rather than rather than help and so i think so take yourself through through that and again you know recognizing there'll be people listening to this podcast in a in a range of places i think and one last one i would add to that checklist for people who are listening to this who are followers of jesus to ask yourself the question how does this, uh, you know, reflect upon Jesus? I'm a follower of Jesus. If I post this and my friends know that I'm a follower of Jesus, is it going to make Jesus look bad? Is it going to make the gospel look bad? If the answer is yes, just shut up and don't do it. Um, and maybe just it's worth sitting on that that, that opinion. Yeah. So um, that could be helpful too. I think you're so right. I think um, I think if people were to only know about Jesus based on um, how a lot of Christians, myself included, act and treat people, then Jesus is only judgmental. He's only this um, this list of right and wrong. And, and we miss out on, on a lot of the love. Like we miss a huge amount of love and, and the compassion and the joy and the um, relational side of yeah. it. If we're only ever basing our faith around these strict opinions that um, mm. we can seem so unmovable from. Um, well, it's interesting, isn't it? Just on that on that point, very briefly, that when you look at where Jesus uh, takes more of the more of the judgment 
angle in the Gospels. It's only ever really, I think, when he's dealing with the religious leaders, when he's dealing with people who are outside of that, complete outsiders. That's when he leans very much on forgiveness and grace and those kind of things. And that should hold us, those of us who are listening to this who are Christians, that should just uh, give us pause for thought. Um, that yeah, you know, when Jesus went to deal with people who were complete outsiders, he didn't lead with, "Well, you should be doing this and that and the other." Um, it was more that kind of radical welcome. Um, and yeah, following Jesus certainly has some some consequences. Um, certainly, that should change the way that one lives. Um, but sometimes, as Christians, I think we put the cart before the horse, and we can be heard by our friends who are not Christians to be saying, "Well, you should be doing X, Y, and Z, and the other," rather than actually the message should be, "Come to Jesus, get the power to." live differently get that radical forgiveness that can bring you back into relationship with god and then you have the promise that the bible offers out of the actual power to begin to live differently and uh, but when you reduce christianity to just this sort of desiccated set of, of, of laws and regulations you end up with dead religion and not the living gospel so i'm um, just on the back of what you're saying you say i'm um, living in relationship with god what does that actually mean that's a that's another wonderful question. Well, I say, you know, if you read the the Bible through, one of the things that I find fascinating is right from the very beginning, it turns out that God is a God of relationship. You know, in the beginning, the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, just after God has created the world and brought everything into existence, what does God do? Well, God steps into space and time and history and has found walking and talking there in creation with with Adam and Eve throughout the pages of the of the Hebrew Old Testament. God turns up time and time again uh, in relationship with his people. And then for Christians, of course, we believe in the in the beginning of the New Testament and those biographies of Jesus. We believe that in Jesus, Jesus wasn't just another human being. He was uh, God himself stepping into space and time and history clothed in human flesh so we could actually have a relationship with him. And the message of the Bible consistently is, look, God doesn't just want us to know about him. He actually wants us to know him, to have a relationship that, that is two way, to know that that presence of God dwelling with us, know what it actually means uh, to live in close communion uh, with our creator. And uh, and that's an incredible promise. Um, but it's also the testimony of, you know, millions upon millions of Christians around the world and down through history um, that, yeah, Christianity offers a, a framework for how you live your life. Like all major faith traditions, it, it talks about about law and structures and commandments and so forth. But they're just the trappings at the heart of it lies that promise that in Jesus, for those who put our trust, their trust in him, we could actually be brought back into literally adopted into God's family. And, uh, you know, those of us who are familiar with Christianity, either because we are Christians or if you're listening to this because you grew up with it, um, you know, that claim that the New Testament makes that we can call God Father, you know, that prayer that Jesus taught his followers to pray, our Father in heaven, that's a unique claim to the Christian faith. No other world religion claims that the creator of the universe can actually be our, our heavenly father if we accept his offer of, uh, of welcome and reconciliation. And so that makes Christianity utterly, utterly unique. So on the back of that, why should hmm. people care at all what Jesus has to say about about grace when the church is often such a bad example of showing grace in disagreement within, within the church and yeah. without as well? Oh, gee, I completely agree. I mean, to go, the tragedy is, you know, when you talk about tribes, Christians are not immune right from this. I mean, you know, Scotland has got a has got a has got a legacy of sectarianism as of other parts of the UK. And Christians sometimes are very quick to just, you know, weaponize their particular theology against each other. So we can be as much part of the part of the problem. What's interesting, I always want to say to people, it's interesting where they ask the question, you talk about Jesus 
that in many of my conversations with friends who are not Christians, I'm always at pain to say, look, hard as I appreciate it can be, can you try and get to a place where maybe you can look past some of the baggage that the church has brought into the equation yeah. and get to Jesus uh, himself? Because what intrigued me is the issue of religious tribalism was there in his day. Um, there were there were tribes of, you know, the, the Jewish people, particularly in the first century, who were very tribal and uh, particularly were people who are very religious. And perhaps the more religious you are, the more tend- the more temptation there is to be tribal because you think you're holier and better than others. And perhaps the group who demonstrated that in the first century more than any others were the Pharisees. They were the most religious of the Jews in the first century and uh, very moral, very religious people and very concerned to make sure other people knew they were. And Jesus had no time for them at all. Um, he would regularly critique them for their use of religion as a weapon, as a way to exclude others, as a way to gain pride and position and status. And what's interesting, he was regularly critiqued in his day for hanging out with irreligious people. Jesus spent most of his time hanging out uh, with those who had no time for organized religion, who were on the fringes. And so actually, although Christians sometimes tragically have done this really good job of domesticating Jesus, Mm -hmm. if you read the Gospels, those four biographies of him in the New Testament, you suddenly discover actually he's quite a shocking figure because he he uh, he terrified the religious establishment and people who normally have nothing to do with religion were drawn to him. And to people listening to this who may be thinking, well, I, I'm not into religion, I'd say, well, great, a good place to start is with Jesus because he was pretty irreligious too. Maybe you should take a, clef- a closer look. So the Jesus that you've been speaking about from the gospel, the, the Jesus that we, um, we learn about in the Bible, how does he engage with people that were deemed outcast or deemed the most judged and scrutinized um, by society at the time. Well, I think what's interesting when you read those four biographies of Jesus in the yeah, the New Testament, when you read the Gospels through is the number of times that Jesus invests huge amounts of time and energy in both seeking out those who are the, the kind of out, the, out, the outcasts and, you know, showing tremendous amount of time for them. So there's a very famous story in, you know, the Gospel of John, the fourth of the four biographies of Jesus there in the New Testament, where, you know, Jesus has a, you know, meets a woman at a, at a well, uh, who's come to draw water in the middle of the day. And if you know anything about the historical context, that's not a time of day you would come out. Why does she do that? Well, because she's got the kind of lifestyle, um, particularly the kind of sort of sexual and, and moral lifestyle that means she's completely excluded from the rest of her her community because of some life choices she's made. And here's Jesus, who is a first is a Jewish male, and secondly, as a rabbi, um, should have nothing to do with her. You know, the, the first century reader of John would expect Jesus to say, you know, get away from me, you sinful woman. He doesn't. He sits down and has this long, protracted kind of conversation where he very gently draws out of her what the issue is, but does it very kind of gently that at the end she has this amazing sort of discovery that that he is the Messiah and then kind of runs off uh, to kind of evangelize and to the whole of her village. Um, And it's amazing kind of story there of the way that Jesus very tenderly engages her or the story, uh, quite famous story again in the gospels there of, of when Jesus is uh, encounters a a woman who's been caught in adultery and she's surrounded by religious uh, leaders who are about to stone her, which is, was the punishment uh, for that, uh, that behavior back in the first century. And there's all kinds of questions going on there as to how, what she's done. Of course, you know, the astute reader might say, well, hang on, why is she there? Not the guy. It's interesting that again, the woman gets the, gets the brunt of things and, and the man has got off scot-free. And again, you know, Jesus would have been perfectly within his rights as a first century Jewish rabbi to say, absolutely, the Old Testament is 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 is, is quite clear here. Um, 
but he just sort of looks the uh, religious leaders in the eye and has a little bit of fun with them actually and says okay well let's 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 take it this way why don't we say that the those of you who in the who have gotten who haven't sinned themselves those of you who've done no wrong you can cast the first stone and uh, it says you know one by one each of them kind of dropped their rocks and wandered off muttering and then jesus bends down and picks up this weeping woman from the dust and sort of says you know your sins are forgiven go and sin no more and the gospels are full of those kind of episodes where again particularly in the context you'd have expected jesus to have to have weighed in uh, a particular way and he doesn't and uh, what's interesting even among his own followers among his own disciples his inner circle of followers the kind of people he invites uh you know many of them were fishermen uh, fishermen were considered pretty much, you know, sort of low caste uh, status and low status in the first century because of the nature of the work. He has a he has a tax collector among his uh, his inner group of twelve disciples. Tax collectors were considered absolute scum in the first century. They were considered to be collaborators with the occupying Romans. But Jesus welcomes Matthew, the tax collector, into his inner group, and the list goes on and on and on. So as you read the Gospels through, it's interesting how often Jesus looks for the outsider and the outcast. And uh, and radically welcomes them and doesn't leave them where they are. Sometimes people hear this and they go, "Well, isn't this you know morally compromising?" No, Jesus never turns around and goes, "It's okay to behave the way you're doing," but he never leads with the sort your life out. He leads with the forgiveness, the welcome, the acceptance, and then in the context of relationship, you know, addresses what's going on in the heart of somebody's life. It's amazing. Um, listen, Andy, thank you so much for giving us your time and giving us your your input and um, your wisdom in this. Um, yeah, it's definitely challenged me to think about the way that I go around talking and the way that I um, the way that I can be putting people down with with having So, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. You're welcome. It's uh, been an absolute pleasure talking to you, Alex. Thanks for having me on the podcast. We really hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast today. I hope that what we've discussed has been helpful and enjoyable. Uh, and if anything has struck a chord with you, please don't hesitate to get in touch. Uh, link into some of the other materials that we publish on our website on hebron-evangelical.co.uk. Or if you want to just chat, give me an email, community at hebron-aberdeen.org.uk. We look forward to next podcast where again we'll be tackling another topic and asking what's God got to do with it?